Hello, and welcome to our first episode of It Takes Guts podcast, brought to you by the American Foregut Society. I'm Dr. Caitlin Houghton. And I'm Pratik Sharma from Kansas City. Caitlin and I are your hosts for this podcast. The goal for this podcast is to bring gastroenterologists and surgeons together to discuss common foregut conditions, and we are delighted to host this for you today. Yeah, we're going to explore disease processes from both perspectives of surgeons and gastroenterologists to kind of gain understanding and hopefully come to consensus on when patients transition from medical treatment to more invasive measures. Today, we're joined by two experts in the treatment of GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. It's going to be our topic today, and that is a really broad topic, but I think in the spirit of AFS, talking about this disease process that, you know, has really been been one that both the gastroenterologists and the surgeons kind of hold dear to their heart. We're excited to have two of our guests, Dr. Trip Buckley here, to, representing our surgical perspective, and Dr. Felice Snow-Sussman, who is representing our gastroenterologist perspective to really discuss treatment measures for this disease. Felice and Trip, say hello to the audience. Hi, this is Felice, and I'll just Caitlin, my last name is so hard to pronounce. So it's Felice Schnall Sussman. Every day it gives me problems. So, you know, you are not the first. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I too have a very difficult last name, Buckley. Um, but, uh, you know, it's uh, something that you can figure out over time. <laughs> okay, well, uh, Trip and Felice, welcome. Felice, I'll start off with you besides having this long name and which may be hard to pronounce. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Well, I am a born and bred New Yorker and the accent that you hear is actually Brooklyn, just in case anyone wanted to know, that's where it's from. I practice at Wall Cornell in New York City and I've been there for almost going on two decades actually. And I actually love my practice. I have a lot of fun every single day. And I would say the vast majority of my practice is limited to patients with diseases of the foregut. Most patients with esophageal diseases, but also those of the stomach and the small intestine and whatnot, and patients with hereditary cancer syndromes. And I'm uh, an advanced endoscopist. So I really see the full spectrum and have the opportunity to treat the full spectrum of disease from benign to malignant and transition patients from both the consultative type of arena to the advanced endoscopic perspective as well. It sounds like you have the classic foregut practice for a gastroenterologist and ones that I know that we see as surgeons, we work closely with you guys. So excited to have you here today. Dr. Buckley, tell us a little bit about your case mix and your practice. Sure. Well, trip is just fine. Uh, I'm at the, the UT Austin uh, Dell Medical School here in Austin, Texas. I have pretty much of a foregut only surgery practice and by foregut, I mean uh, non-bariatric foregut, so dealing with esophageal disorders, uh, stomach disorders. And uh, yeah, my, from a case mix standpoint, I mean, it, it's uh, the full gamut from some diagnostic things. We uh, certainly have uh, in-house gastroenterologists, which is actually unique. So I'm in a digestive health clinic with gastroenterologists uh, whom I practice with every day. So we've got two 
full manometry systems, and we each do testing and our own uh, reads of those tests, all the way through advanced endoscopy, and then of course, surgery. And so it's been an exciting time. I was actually inspired to go into surgery and this particular type of surgery from a gastroenterologist whom I did research with uh, even before medical school. Many of the GIs might know this individual. His name is Gene Overholt, so uh, inventor of the flexible sigmoidoscope. So uh, it's been a journey for me, and I finally achieved my dream of getting GIs and surgeons together in a single practice and you know working together to uh, have the best outcomes for our patients. Okay, thanks, uh, Trip. Now that we've heard all these wonderful things about our panelists, let's uh, put them to work a little bit here. So, Felice, let's start off with you and you know get a little bit more about gastroesophageal reflux disease patients. And by the time these patients get to us, Felice, they're either not tolerating the medical therapy, they're not happy with the medical therapy or the treatment's not working. So can you tell us a few things about the shortcomings of medical therapy? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I agree with you. One of the things about being a gastroenterologist that specializes in esophageal diseases is, is that very often patients have been on multiple medical therapies, not one proton pump inhibitor, but two, three, two times a day, four times a day. Some of them have had multiple endoscopies. And, you know, so these are not the patients that come in and start on medical management and then are fine and walk away. What that allows for us to have is really, you know, really sort of stretch ourselves. And I think one of the first things is deciding does someone or does someone not actually have GERD at this point in time? Because as you know, and I'm sure everybody on this call knows that. Patients can get labeled diseases. They can get put onto one of these medicines for a variety of reasons. You know, they were in the emergency room for something and they were put onto a proton pump, but they were told that they have reflux and it's not actually even the diagnosis that's at play. So for one of the things that's really important um, in my practice is nailing down the diagnosis. You know, does someone have reflux disease? And as a consequence, if the medications are not working, then what other diagnosis perhaps is at play, even if it's still reflux, and also what other options are available to them at this point in, in treatment. Okay, great. A trip just uh, for you along those same lines, traditionally gastroenterologists have been the ones sending these patients to the surgeons for consideration of, for anti-reflux surgery or some other minimally invasive procedures. Do you get referrals directly from primary care physicians or ENT surgeons, uh, you know, for reflux, or is it primarily through gastroenterologists? No, I would say um, it's primarily from gastroenterologists uh, and or the patients themselves who have been around the medical block, as it were, and just haven't found the answers they're looking for. So those are the predominant ones. Certainly ENTs, you know, uh, is, makes up a big part and as well as pulmonologists. But yeah, that's, uh, that's the predominance of, uh, of our practice. Uh, and I do just want to give a shout out to Felice from the testing standpoint. I mean, I think that so many people get labeled with GERD and no, no testing has been done and, and testing is the crux of, you know, figuring out how best to treat these folks and figure out what, how severe their disease is, what their disease burden is and, and nailing down that diagnosis. Felice, as far as a gastroenterologist's perspective, you know, when a patient first comes to, and I know you're not a general gastroenterologist, but 
kind of, if you could answer this, if they come to a ga gastroenterologist complaining of acid reflux, how often are they just being on a, put on a trial of PPIs and how often are gastroenterologists doing objective testing forehand? And what kind of drives that decision-making? So I would say that from even some, you know, general GI, it's very rare for a patient to present to a gastroenterologist, general GI, without having already been on a PPI. And most of that is because there are over-the-counter medications and direct-to-consumer advertising is an enormously powerful thing. And you can't go on a bus or a plane or a train or read a newspaper without seeing advertisement regarding these medications. So the patients themselves are treating themselves because they don't need medication. You know, they don't need a prescription necessarily. I think the big, you know, more important question is people who've been you know, sort of empirically treated for reflux disease, why are they not good at that point in time? And so one of the things that's really important for me is to make sure, are the proton pump inhibitors optimized? Because very often patients come in, they say, I'm on X, Y, and Z medication. And then when you start to really ask them about that medication, they're taking it maybe as needed. They're taking it before they go to bed. They're taking it with their meal. So just being told that I'm on a PPI is really just a small nugget into that. And I, of course, then start to question them and, and educate them on, are you taking this medication? And optimally it would be a half an hour prior to your meal um, to make sure that they're taking it the correct way to really assess whether or not that medication has failed them, right? Because very often they'll come and say, I take PPIs, they don't work. And that might not necessarily be true. And then if once you have them optimized with medications, how long are you going to give them as a trial of PPIs to see if they actually are working for the patient? So in general, in our practice, let's say, or even a general GI practice or my practice, I'm going to discuss with them, are you taking it? And then I'm going to put them on a two to four week course. I mean, that is really what I am you know, thinking of now. The reality is in terms of, let's say, if we think someone, that, that's if they've come in on the medications, right? If it's brand new, I might give longer to assess healing of erosive esophagitis. So I feel if they come in naive, never seen a medication, very, very rare, right? That is just very rare for us to see those types of patients. But I might give them an eight-week course of, of, of the medication, make sure that they're optimizing it have a conversation with them about lifestyle, dietary changes, what are they doing, all those other things which we might get to at some point in this conversation. At that point in time, that's when I'll reassess, is this medication working or is this medication not working? Are you doing an endoscopy at the same time or are you going to wait until you see how the meds work before doing it? Okay. So if, so, you know, some people would say you go to a barber, you get a haircut, right? And so you go to a gastroenterologist, you might wind up getting an upper endoscopy. I think that is probably true. And the reality is this, our diagnostic tool is the endoscope. I mean, that is the reality. And if patients were well and did great on the PPIs, like I said before, they wouldn't be seeing us. So the reality is they probably have earned an endoscopy by the time they've seen a gastroenterologist. What they've not earned is probably five endoscopies, right? If they've had five, we, we don't necessarily want to go on with that. But I would say if someone had been previously empirically treated with a PPI without objective workup, I would, I would make sure that it's optimized. If they have unsatisfactory symptom relief, then I would do a diagnostic upper endoscopy. And at that point in time, I would do it typically off of the PPI for two to four weeks. 
Trip, uh, you mentioned about diagnostic testing, and uh, you know that was the word both of you have been using for a while now. So let's get into testing now. And so you know you mentioned your dif- different referral patterns. Let's say it's an ENT surgeon or even the patient who's gone through the medical part and comes to you and you're evaluating the patient. What are the different types of diagnostic testing? Now, let's keep endoscopy out of the way. Hopefully, you're leaving that for the gastroenterologist. What are the diagnostic testing are you considering? Yeah, sure. Uh, Great question. So often uh, patients have had an endoscopy by the time they've seen me, and they may have had those five endoscopies before they see me. But at the end of the day, if they're coming in for GERD, we have to have objective evidence of GERD. So we need a pH test um, at a bare minimum. If they've just had an endoscopy, we will just go ahead with a uh, unsedated Bravo and uh, high resolution manometry. Sometimes patients don't want that uh, or not going to tolerate that, in which case we uh, will repeat the endoscopy and do a pH study. But those, uh, that's our go-to is the, uh, is the Bravo. Occasionally we'll, we'll do 24 hour pH impedance uh, but our go-to test is uh, off PPI, you know, 48 or 96 hour uh, Bravo. Okay. Felice, uh, I, I know you don't like surgeons that much, but when do you consider sending <laughs> your GERD patients uh, for surgery? I mean, uh, let's assume here's a patient who is doing well on PPI therapy or you've documented reflux. So let's talk about documented reflux. We all agree that we need to ensure that the patient actually has reflux because if the patient doesn't have reflux, this podcast is over. So let's <laughs> assume there is reflux. When would you send that patient to be seen by trip? I want to clarify something. I love my surgical colleagues. So I'm putting it out there and you can put that on repeat. Um, and in particular, me. In particular, trip, <laughs> Caitlin, all of that. And because let me be perfectly honest with you, this it takes a village to take care of these patients. And so any gastroenterologist who believes that they can do this without a surgical partner, they are not practicing the best medicine. So I'm just putting it out there. Now, when would I refer uh, someone to uh, a surgeon? I would say that I probably have the conversation about surgery with every single patient with every single patient at some point in time. It might not be in the first conversation, but at some point in time, if I am still seeing someone on a proton pump inhibitor, especially if they are not you know, achieving optimal results, but even if they're on maintenance therapy, given the environment now, given the conversations related to medications, related to PPIs, given the advancements, in both our endoscopic surgical approaches as well as surgical approaches, I believe that with personalized medicine and with an intention to treat a patient as an individual, you should give them every option. And so for me, I have in my conversation the fact that surgery is on the table potentially for everyone. Now, who wouldn't it be? So if I have someone who comes to me and they're at extremes of age and they have comorbidities and they are well enough on their PPI, I don't start having a conversation about an elective surgery because the reality is this, the risk for them is higher. But if I have a young patient, um, and by young, I mean, you know, 18 year olds to even 70 year olds that look great or even higher than that, and they are well, and they are enjoying life and they have good quality of life, but they are 
not happy to be on medications or them or their symptoms not well controlled or they want or they're fearful of medications, then I have a conversation with them about the different options. And what I do is I allow them to go to speak with a surgical colleague and to meet them and to hear from them also, what would this entail? What would life potentially be like? What's the possibility that not working? What's the possibility of redo? All those other things that we speak about, potential for gas bloat. And I allow them to really be a part of the decision-making as well. If I can just comment on that, I mean, that's that's a really enlightened approach from a gastroenterologist, but it's not surprising coming from Felice because her mentor is Phil Katz, who wrote the guidelines for the gastroenterologists, and they're being updated now, and I, I'm not privy to what they're going to say, but in the guidelines for treatment of GERD under surgery is that uh, is surgery is an option for patients on long-term therapy on PPI. That's like... 40 million Americans. Surgery is as effective as medication for treatment of GERD. It really should be more effective uh, based on the latest data, but nonetheless, that's what it says. But most gastroenterologists don't treat to the guidelines. And so, and I think that that's, frankly, we can get into this later, maybe, but that's the fault of surgeons. I mean, surgeons have not controlled our own quality in terms of results and outcomes in terms of the procedures that we have available to us. And so I think it's really on surgeons to reach out to their GI colleagues and say, hey, I'm an expert in this. These are my outcomes. We should all know our outcomes. This is what I will offer. And this is how we can team up to take better care of these patients. So, yeah. so Trip, can you tell us that? I mean, so you're talking about outcomes. We all know outcomes with PPIs, but you know, you mentioned outcomes. So tell us some outcomes of results with surgery. How good are they? Are they durable? Does it matter who's doing the surgery as opposed to a PPI, which can be given by anyone? So can you tell us and share your thoughts about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, in general, I mean, there's multiple prospective randomized trials of usually it's the classic uh, Nissen, but there are trials out there looking at TIFF, looking at links, and, you know, compared to PPI therapy, there's a great trial looking at uh, links uh, versus double-dose PPI therapy, meaning patients who are not optimized on single dose. All of them support uh, the surgical option. To your point, it doesn't matter who's doing it. Of course it matters. And it, and it really matters. It's one of those surgeries, uh, much like esophageal cancer surgery or pancreatic surgery, you have to go to somebody uh, who knows what they're doing. So we think that, that that number is doing at least 25 a year. My practice has been over 200 for the last 10 years, but 200 cases, anti-reflux cases a year. But it, it probably takes about 50 to get good in, in your fellowship and residency and then you need to, you know, do a certain volume to stay to stay good at those cases because, you know, the fact of the matter is, is fundoplications are hard. Links and there's some other enabling technologies that that make it easier, but you got to still make sure you understand the disease process so you're picking the right patients. And as uh, as Felice alluded to, you're really trying to look at, you know, the phenotypes that are going to benefit from certain surgeries. So I think that that's hugely important. How do you follow your outcomes? Well, you can look at a lot of different things. I mean, first of all, we follow our patients forever, and I recognize that's probably not in every uh, practice's capability, but you can look, you, we always get GERD HRQLs. So it's, it, GERD HRQLs are out in the literature a lot, but we get a GERD HRQL on everybody, and then we get it six months after surgery, and then at a year, and then every year thereafter. So we can track our outcomes, and I can tell you that on average for our practice, our GERD HRQLs, and it's been you know classic over the last uh, 10 years that we've been following them, is that on average, we take a patient from a GERD HRQL of 26 
and bring them down to six. And our last cohort of 500 patients, it was three. So we want to look for those patients in whom we can have that huge delta in their quality of life that they're just not going to get with a PPI. You know, just to add to what you're saying in terms of the phenotypes, when I'm looking at the patients in particular, the ones that I actually say to myself, I'm going to even early on start suggesting surgery. Those are really the ones that have persistent or troublesome GERD symptoms and have severe reflux. So the ones that I do the endoscopy, they have LA grade C or D esophagitis, and the ones that actually have the large hypopernias. You know, I know that the PPIs are just not going to necessarily hit the mark on that patient population. And that's really probably where our surgical colleagues are going to play a huge role in imagine patients that are just at times extraordinarily symptomatic. Felice, uh, to that point, I think, you know, what, what surgeons have seen, I guess, is that, or the frustration that we've seen between surgeons and GI doctors is sometimes that, you know, we feel like we've evolved and we're starting to treat patients based on the phenotype. We're not just using the Nissen anymore. We have other options like links and toupee, and we're trying to really personalize surgery for the patients. And I, we feel like our outcomes are better than kind of the bad rap, so to speak, the bad rap that the Nissen had with a lot of gas bloat and phasia and the inability to burp and vomit and all those side effects that, you know, it seems like in the past gastroenterologists really kind of held on to. Well, because of those, we think surgery isn't a good option for our patients and that maybe it's a failure to refer to surgeons. I don't know if that's old thinking, but that's kind of what maybe surgeons feel that the gastroenterologists are thinking. Sure. Well, I can tell you, you know, just being on this podcast and the ethos of the American Fork Gut Society is to dispel those things, right? And so the way that this happens is through conversations. Now, one of the reasons why I might be enlightened is because I actually work in a practice setting where I work arm in arm with my, you know, four gut surgeons and we discuss cases, we share cases, we talk about the phenotypes and we do this exact thing. You know, I start the conversation with my patients when I'm, when I'm talking about surgery, I know about the surgeries. And so I think it's my responsibility, even as the gastroenterologist to understand the surgery so that when I send my patients to surgery, I consider it in my mind that I'm teeing them up for the surgeons. And I make sure all the testing is done. And then after that, I start discussing with them, what are the different surgeries that my, that the surgeon is potentially going to start talking to them about? And, and that really helps the patients as well. They don't go there first hearing about it because they trust us and they've been with us probably for potentially years. And that recommendation makes a big difference. But what you're talking to is exactly important. And so, for instance, in our patients that have, let's say, regurgitation, who have failed medical management, that is really where I'm thinking about magnetic sphincter augmentation, because I know in that patient population that that technique really is probably is going to be very helpful. In my patients that are obese, that have been thinking about having obesity surgery, I'm going to talk to them about a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, because that would then probably really heal all of their problems. And now not only are you taking care of reflux, but you're taking care of probably the bigger killer for them, which is obesity. But you're exactly right. If we only think about this as reflux surgery and going for one specific surgery, that's not good. And what I rely upon is that my surgical colleagues also then are able to offer the gamut 
of surgery because I think where you get into trouble is potentially a surgeon that's a one trick pony. They know one thing, they do it, and they don't know how to do a links, which means they might not offer a links and then potentially, you know, we're not optimizing, you know, the patient care. So I think that's kind of where AFS plays a big role. And also what's really important is that our surgeons have evolved also to realize they have to do everything. Like they have to, or at least maybe even refer to one of their surgical colleagues if they don't, right? You know, I don't do links. Let me refer to, you know, someone who does. I don't know. But I think that's really where we end, you know, this kind of bad rap of, of, of surgery. And, and Caitlin, partly, I, I think you're, question also pertains to the type of practice and the expertise, right? Is that here we are talking about all expert centers, expert gastroenterologists with access to everything. But at the end, also, we have to remember that GERD patients are seen all over the country and from the rural areas to New York, you know, and so what may be available there is difficult. And plus, one size doesn't fit all. So Unlike Felice, I mean, I don't think I'm personally so proactive about surgery in every patient I see. I mean, if there's patients who are taking medications three or four times a week and they're happy with it, I don't see any reason for them to be seeing a surgeon or even discussing right. surgery in that uh, patient uh, population. So uh, it's all, as you mentioned, it's individualized now. So we have to identify which of those patients, not the 40 million Americans, not everybody needs surgery, but which are those patients who need surgery? So Trip, going to you, you mentioned about some aspects of surgery and some pre-op testing. Was that it? Are there any other specific tests that you require prior to surgery that you would want the GI colleagues to be thinking about before sending them over to you? Yeah, and, and just before I, I hop on that, uh, I'll, I'll comment on yours, which is, you know, I think it's really important. It's looking for that huge delta in quality of life. So while the guidelines might say it's an option, you know, every day when I'm in clinic, at least once a day, I tell someone, hey, you're doing great on this PPI. You don't, dementia is not really a thing. You know, I go back to what uh, my mom taught me when I had my first child, which is you can't make a happy baby happier. So if you're doing well, keep doing well. And we'll reserve surgery for later or if you start to have breakthrough symptoms. And so I think uh, my actual practice is not to just operate on everybody that's PPI dependent, but really provide that education around and dispelling some of the bad news about PPIs and then understanding where they are in, in their goals for their reflux disease and how the best way to treat it is. So uh, back to testing. I mean, we get an esophagram on everybody. We have a specialized marshmallow bagel swallow that we do on every patient. Um, again, every patient has needs to have an endoscopy. Um, does everybody have to have a pH study? The answer is no. I mean, again, if you've got Barrett's esophagus, that's clear objective evidence of GERD. If you've got uh, LA grade C or D esophagitis, I consider that objective evidence of GERD. I don't operate just straight out of the gate on everybody that uh, has LA grade A or B, but if you're on double dose PPI and you've got LA grade B esophagitis, I mean, that you've got you've got GERD, but usually we end up getting a pH test on, on many of those folks. Okay, thanks, uh, Trip, And for our listeners, this is the It Takes Gut podcast from the American Foregut Society. And uh, just uh, listening uh, tells us about the importance of this multidisciplinary approach to patients with foregut disorders. 
going to turn it over to Caitlin for any final uh, concluding remarks. And uh, what does the future hold, Caitlin? Well, I think one of the biggest things that we've kind of learned is that it does take the village, as Felice said, and really by working together and kind of understanding that transition of medical therapy and when it's appropriate for a consultation by a surgeon and really individualizing it towards the patient's need. And then also having that multidisciplinary approach. And I think the AFS is trying to enforce that or, or not enforce, but really try to foster those relationships. And we hope that by listening to this conversation, you can start fostering that relationship with your GIs if you don't have them already or from a surgeon or GIs to your surgeons and making sure that you do partner with each other uh, to really make sure our patients have the best outcomes possible. Well, thank you both Trip and Felice for taking the time to talk with us today. And uh, we look forward to our next episodes. Uh, please stay tuned for the whole series. We'll have exciting topics ongoing throughout the next couple of months. Thank you. Thank you for having thank me. It was wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh -huh.